Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. If you do not have your Bible with you, you can open the Pew Bible to page number 940. Because I always do like to make sure that you can see where these words come from. It's not my words, it's God's words, and I want you to be able to follow along there. We're going to be looking at uh, the first five verses. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient word reads. Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Father, we now ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And as we think about these words penned so many years ago by your servant Paul, for a specific group of people for a specific time, Paul didn't realize it's also going to be for us today, but you did. And so, Lord, now I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, that your spirit would illuminate this text for us, not only so we understand the meaning of it, but so that we also know how to apply it to our life. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've titled this message this morning, The Moralistic Trap. The Moralistic Trap. And I can hear the voice of my preaching professor in my ear as I read these words over and over this week. And that is that every good sermon, every good preacher gets to the you. And Paul here in our text, as he turns the corner from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 2, gets to the you. Paul moves from the third person plural of Romans chapter 1 to the second person singular of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 1 is a description of a person who seems to lack any sense of moral character at all. In fact, three times as we've seen last week, uh, Paul recorded for us that God turned them over. God turned them over to the lusts of their hearts, to the desires of their heart. God gave them over to the degrading, to the dishonoring passions. And then also, uh, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them completely over to a depraved mind. It is what I have labeled, as I have called last Sunday, it is a sermon, and last Sunday's sermon, it was the downward spiral. It is the slippery slope of compromise, the slippery slope of sin that ultimately leads to the total destruction of the person. That was that last week. But now here in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul addresses the person caught in what I call the moralistic trap. The moralistic trap. The moralistic, the person caught in this moralistic trap of Romans chapter 2 is looking at Romans chapter 1 and saying, I am none of that. I am none of what has just been described there by Paul. I am none of that. I am a good person. I pay my taxes. I, I live my life in a moralistic, defined by the culture in a way that is culturally accepted. I 
do not cheat, I do not steal, I do not lie. This is who I am. I am none of those that we have already talked about. And so in this chapter, Paul is turning a corner. In fact, in, in, in chapter 1, uh, he's writing to the Greek, better known as, as it, for, for us, better known as pagans. They were the unbelievers. They were the non-church people, the non-religious people. Chapter 2, Paul is writing to the Jewish people, to those who are the religious, to those who are in the church, we may say. And so from these five verses, I want you to notice, I've only got three headings this morning. And the first one is the addressee. Who is Paul addressing in these five verses? The second is the approach that Paul is using. And then finally, where we'll spend most of our time this morning, and that is the argument that Paul has for the addressee. And so we will start with the addressee. And you may have noticed already uh, in your text, looking at it there, I'm using the NASB, and the NASB, and I think the ESV would be the same. Five times in the first verse, Paul says, you. Paul now comes to the you. Paul goes from they and them to the you, your, yourself. He makes this more personal. In fact, 13 times in these five verses, Paul says, you. Paul gets very specific with the you. And so obviously, as good Bible students, we must ask ourselves, who is the you, right? Thirteen times, Paul is making reference to a specific person, to a specific group of people. And so we must find out, who is Paul speaking to? Who is this? Paul gets to the you. Who is the you? And the you here is a very religious person. The you here is what we sometimes call in, in, in more of a condescending way to some and say, holier than thou. It's a self-righteous person who Paul is speaking to. We know the type, do we not? We know who Paul is talking about. They never miss a Bible study. They never miss a prayer meeting. They never miss reading their Bible. They never miss a Sunday service. They never miss a Sunday school. They never miss an opportunity to elevate themselves above the people Paul just named in Romans chapter 1. That is who Paul is speaking to. The you is the self-righteous among us. None of that is very comfortable, is it? And I think also considering the context of the day being Palm Sunday, I think Paul is also speaking to the you of those who this day that we remember as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that went out in front of him and said, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, we're crying out, crucify him. These are the people that Paul has in mind as he turns the corner to Romans chapter 2. The you is the person who has the highest moral character and yet fails to see himself or herself as God sees him or her. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. Isaiah writes this, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Everything that we do, Isaiah is saying, is just like a filthy garment. This is the self-righteous religious person who is not truly born again. A person who's going through the promotions, a person who grew up within the church. This is who Paul is speaking of, not the pagan of chapter 1, but the religious person of chapter 2. And we know 
expecting this to be the case, and we'll get there, well, sometime. Um, in verse 17, Paul says, but you, but you, if you bear the name Jew, if you bear the name Christian, and you rely upon the law, and you boast in God, this is who Paul's target is here this morning, and I find this message timely as we go into the Easter season. And so to help us understand the two groups of Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, I do want to remind you of two stories with two people who both had an encounter with Jesus. Romans chapter 1, the story there that I have for you is found in John chapter 4. We simply know it as the woman at the well. And in John chapter 4, we're told of, a, of Jesus coming along, and we're quite familiar with the story, are we not? In John chapter 4, if you're not, you can read it there. And a woman comes along, or Jesus comes along, and he takes a break beside a well. He's in Samaria. He's not in his home turf, if you will. And as he sits there, a woman of Samaria, a woman of the land, a woman of the people. Samaria is a half-breed, not Jew, not totally, totally uh, a, 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 uh, from Samaria. They're, they're a mixed breed. They're worse than a pagan, if you will, to the religious eyes. And this woman comes along, and Jesus asks her, I want a drink. Jesus says, I would like a drink. And, the, and then this woman says to Jesus, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, an unbeliever, as somebody who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, how is it that you ask me for a drink? And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was asking you for a drink, you not only would give me a drink, but I would give you a drink of living water so that you would never thirst again, so that you would no longer be thirsty. And this lady asked the obvious question, right? First, she says, sir, you have nothing. She's a practical lady. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is quite deep. How do you expect to get this living water out of this well? I mean, this was a well that Jacob, her fathers, not only did they dig this well, but they drank from this well and they watered their flock from this well. Jesus says, the water that I give you is a spring of water coming up to eternal life. Bringing to eternal life. She responds, sir, give me this Sir, give me this water. That's a practical response to it. This is her reasoning. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw water. Now, this woman's approach to, to Jesus and his offer, I have written in the margins of my Bible, this is the vending machine, Jesus, right? What can Jesus do for me? I have to come in the heat of the day and draw water from this well. And you're saying, I don't have to do that anymore? Jesus, I want that. Jesus, if this is what you can do for my life, if this is how you can fix me, this is what I want. This is a, a self-focused approach to what Jesus is offering her. Now, how many among us would not say, and if this was an evangelistic situation, that we would not ask her right then and there, you want Jesus, let us pray the sinner's prayer, right? This is not what Jesus says. Jesus understands the heart of this woman, and he is not there yet. And so he says to her, you go and call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And she says, Jesus says, you're right. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is not even your husband. 
You see, the, you see this woman. You see the type of person that she was, that often she's portrayed. And I don't know if we can portray her faithfully that way because we don't know her whole situation. But certainly many sermons are preached upon this, this, this woman of less than uh, a moral character, less than the character that we would desire. And this is who that Jesus is speaking of. And she herself seen herself in this light, I do believe, within this story. But Jesus calls her to repentance. And this is a woman who understands her life. This is a woman who understands where she has been in life. This is a woman who understands her failings in life. And this is a woman who is more than ready to accept what Jesus has to offer. That is the person of Romans chapter 1. Yes, it is a long list of vices. Yes, it is a long list of sins. Yes, it is a long list of those we don't want to define ourselves as. But those are the ones that often have the most receptive hearts for the message of the gospel. I want to give you an example of the picture of the person that's being spoken of here in Romans chapter 2. For Romans chapter 2, I want to go to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, it's simply known as the rich young ruler. I mean, it's the totally opposite of the woman at the well. This guy also comes to Jesus, and, and he approaches Jesus versus Jesus approaching him. But in Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 16, it tells us there that someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? This was the first mistake this man is making, thinking that he can do anything to receive this eternal life. But it's a fair question. And Jesus says to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then this, this, this self-righteous, rich young ruler here says, which ones? Fair question. And Jesus says, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as himself. He just, Jesus just goes to the Ten Commandments with this man. Jesus knows who, who this guy is. He grew up in Sunday school. He's got lots of stars on his refrigerator of everything that he's passed in Sunday school, right? We've been there. We can understand. And, and he says, Jesus, all these things I have kept. I've done all these things from my youth. What else am I still lacking? And here Jesus says this, if you wish to become complete, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come follow me. Now, we must first understand that Jesus could certainly be talking about his literal, actual money. But I don't think that's completely what Jesus has in mind. I think Jesus is asking him to give up all his self-righteous attitude to keep up all his moral standards that he himself has set for himself. But when the rich man heard this, or when the young man heard this, he said, he went away grieving because he had much property. He owned a lot of things. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? Jesus, looking at them, said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
This man went away because if you would have given him a list of things to do, if you would have given him, you go work at the homeless shelter. You would have said you spent all night in prayer. If, he would, if Jesus would have told this man, you write out, you memorize Romans, the complete letter, this man would have done it. But what this man could not do was give up his self-righteous, religious. He couldn't give up religiosity, right? He couldn't give those things up. This is the person that Jesus or that Paul is now speaking of in Romans chapter 2. And I offer to you here this morning, this is the most difficult person to reach with the true gospel. The one who knows your Bible better than you know your own Bible. The one who was raised, the one who has gone to a Christian school, the one who was raised in a Christian home generationally. This is the one that Paul is now setting his sights on. And this is one that we have to tackle here before us this morning. Jesus tells this guy, your good works are worthless to saving faith. And it is as we know, right? It's faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, as revealed in Scripture alone for the glory of God alone. It is nothing we can do in of ourselves. It is only what God can do for us. This is now the... Uh, the addressee of the you that Paul is speaking of here. Let's move on to the approach. The approach that Paul uses, it's a diatribe, right? It's just a literary device, and it's kind of one of those things where it's a conversation with an imaginary friend. How many of you have an imaginary friend? We have this conversation with this person. I do it every time on my morning walks, and sometimes I look around to make sure nobody's close by, to be honest with you. But this is the method that Paul is using. In verses, uh, uh, he, he says in verse 3, but do you suppose this, oh man? Well, what a demeaning way of addressing someone. And so, so Paul has this fictitious character in mind. He's being offensive because he's making up this person he's having this conversation with. Do you suppose this, oh man, that when you pass judgment, and then he keeps going. Paul will do it again on Romans chapter 9. Where Paul does the same thing there. He says, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Who are you, thing that was made? Who are you to answer back to the molder, to the potter, and complain about how God, how the potter made you? Paul has a way of communicating, and this is just one way that he's doing it here in this text here this morning. This is the approach that Paul is using as he's addressing these religious people. Instead of addressing them specifically, he's made up this fictitious character that he's going to have a conversation with while he's making his point, while he's making his argument. And we now do want to turn to the argument that Paul is making. And we see it, the argument that Paul is making. We've got to go all the way back to to verse 1 of our chapter here. And as we go back there, we see the therefore obviously bringing forth what came forward, came with it. And so Paul is saying that, you know, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice, or you judge practice the same things. You practice the same things, Paul is saying. And if we were going to look at that list, we would see in that list, we could could go to the Sermon on the Mount. And I would encourage you to go and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as, as I did. And, and you can see what Jesus says there. It's very much in line with what Paul is saying here. Oh, you don't murder? 
oh, that's fantastic. But Jesus says, but if you hate your brother, it's your attitude, you might as well murder. Oh, that's fantastic that you're not an adulterer, but you lust in your heart. You're no different. You're no different. That's the argument that Jesus was, was setting forth in the Sermon on the Mount, the standard that Jesus is setting. And now Paul here is accusing these religious people that I'm sure knew the Sermon on the Mount quite well and accusing them of that same thing right here. Verse 2, he says, And you, or we, Paul includes himself in this now, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Such things goes back to the list we went through last week. Romans chapter 1, the end of it. But do you suppose this, he goes on and he says, they are not people lacking any knowledge here, Paul is saying in verse 2. We know, you know, you know the list, you know the rules, you know how we're supposed to follow these things. And we know that those who practice such things, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon them who do that. I was reminded of Luke chapter 19, verse 22. It's the, it's the parable of the ten servants, right? Remember the story where the master was going out of town, going away, and he gave his servants a certain amount of his finances, a certain amount of his properties to manage and to take care of. And as he came back, he, he questioned them on how they did. And he gets down to the one guy, and the one guy says, Master, I know that you were a hard you were a slave driver. You were a hard master. And so what I did to make sure that I didn't lose what you gave me, I have buried it. And see, here what you have given me, I give you back to you. And the master says, by your own words, I judge you. You knew I was a hard person. You knew I was a difficult person. None of that was foreign to you. And still you failed in the responsibility that I have given for you to do. You're judged by your own words. James chapter 4, verse 17. To the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's a verse that we're quite familiar with. And, and as we think about those Paul is talking to here, the, the religious people, and those who are caught up in religiosity, if you will, those who are caught up in doing church, if you will, I want to get a little practical here for us this morning, too, that we, too, must be careful in the knowledge we have and how we use that. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, Paul warns us, or Peter warns us there, in 2 Peter chapter 2 at verse 17, he says these, he's talking about the false prophets. If you could go all the way back in the first, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false people false prophets and teachers among you. And he goes on down and he says, these are springs without water. These are springs that are without water, and it's like a mist that is driven by the... They seem to have substance. They sprinkle in a little bit of Bible in the message that they're preaching. But the message that they're preaching is a false gospel. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they, they entice by fleshly desires... And sensuality. They prey on what we gravitate towards. They prey on what we desire. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in air, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
For if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled and overcome. The last state is worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way. And what Paul is saying here, Paul is saying that we too, or Peter, I'm sorry, everybody's Paul to me, but Peter is saying that we must be careful on who we listen to. We are also held accountable for the the knowledge that we have. And just because someone wants to sprinkle in a little bit of Bible doesn't make it accurate. We too will be held accountable by those things. But coming back to more directly on Arcus here this morning of Romans chapter 2, verse 3. Paul now says this, and he goes into the question form here with this, leaves this fictitious person, kind of comes into who he's talking to there and pulling them into this conversation. He says, do you suppose that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things that you do the same yourself, that you will not be under the judgment of God? The obvious answer here is no. But what Paul is really saying is, because you're by your actions, you do. You do think that you will escape judgment. He goes on to verse 4, and he does something very similar. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And they're saying, no, we believe this. Paul's saying, no, by the way that you live your life, you're actually not doing this. You see, Paul is not asking them questions in verse 3 and 4. He is making a statement. He is saying, you do take lightly the judgments of God. You do trample upon the kindness, the tolerance, and the patience of God. Paul is not asking. Paul is telling them in question form. It it may be what some of you men have experienced this morning. As you were preparing to go to church and you walked out of the bedroom or your closet or wherever, and your wife might have looked at you and said, you're not wearing that shirt to church, are you? No, no, I'm not. I was actually going to go start the car, then I was going to come back and change shirts. Of course I was going to wear this shirt, right? This is what Paul said. We find ourselves in those situations sometimes where we're asked a question, and it's not really a question. And could I get kind of like just real for you for a minute this morning? That is not really helpful. It would be better, wife, Take notes. It would be better if you actually just said you might want to choose a different shirt this morning, right? It might be better to say, you know, I don't think you should wear that shirt this morning. And husband, if your wife says that to you, it might be practical to say, well, I was going to, but obviously it's not a great choice. What would you rather I wear? Right? I mean, isn't this how you function? I mean, this is how we function. Right? No, no, we don't function. We don't function that way at all. I mean, wouldn't it just be like terribly amazing if we were just open and honest and authentic with each other? Well, wouldn't it be amazing with with a little bit of tact, which I can lack, just to be open and honest with our feelings and with our questions and how we go about doing life together? Like it could be quite refreshing if we would do that. And so Paul is saying, you do take lightly. You do trample upon the grace of God. Of verse 4, he says, you do trample upon this kindness and this tolerance. And as Paul told the pagans of Romans chapter 1, you are without excuse because God has placed his presence within you. You are without excuse because in all of creation, you can see the handiwork of God. 
Here, too, Paul is pointing to this common grace. This is not a saving grace. This is not a special grace. This is a common grace. Everyone receives the kindness and this tolerance and this patience of God. But there is a special grace, a saving grace. That is not what Paul is speaking of right here. We're going to get there. But Paul is speaking of this kindness and this patience that that God has with all of us that we trample upon more often than we do not. And then in verse 5, Paul says, but because of the stubbornness and because of the unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and of revelation of the judgment or the righteous judgment of God. He's talking about end time there. But because of your stubbornness, stubbornness, sclerotos, it's just a, um, it just literally means a stubborn attitude with regard to, attitude. Our attitude is is very stubborn. We refuse this. It's the same attitude that Pharaoh had, where he would say, yes, okay, I'll let your people go. And then his heart would become hardened. He would become stubborn, and he would change his mind and not let the people go. This is what Paul is now saying to them. You are becoming stubborn. Actually, your, your hearts are becoming hard. It is where we get our word from. That tells us it's, a, it's the hardening of the arteries, right? It, it, it's a time where it's a, it's a pathological hardening of the tissue. It's being a pathological. Sometimes we hear those words. And so looking up what that means there, I did go into the medical journal that we all go for our medical advice, right? We all get our medical advice from WebMD. And it would tell us there that a person who is a pathological liar, who has this hardening, is a person that must lie frequently and for no good reason. Pathological liars harm themselves with their behavior, but they keep doing it in spite of the consequences. Even though they realize what they're doing, they keep doing it. This is the type of stubbornness that Paul is referring to here. People that that grew up within a church, the people that are religious, the people that understand the patience and the tolerance and the mercy of God. And yet we continue to function in this way. And Paul is saying you are storing up this wrath. In this uh, parable of the ten servants that I referenced earlier, the servant here, or the master, tells the servant, why didn't you put my money in the bank? Having come, I could have at least collected interest. There was a storing up there that the servant had in mind. It's the same sense, but in the negative sense here with Paul. It's this storing up that will come due sometime. It's what Jonathan Edwards called the dam that is holding back the river. And the river keeps piling up against the dam, and sooner or later, this dam will be let loose. The wrath of God will be let loose sooner for those who are storing up this wrath. And because I know what you're thinking, (laughs) Pastor, you've been ending with the wrath of God every single Monday. And we have. Romans has been. It's been difficult. But if I want want, want to come back here to verse 4, because I want to try to make a practical application here. So you come back to verse 4. And Paul writes this, do you think lightly of the riches, of the kindness, of the tolerance, and the patience 
of God. And I want to remind you of Adam and Eve. I'm going to go all the way back to there, which I like to do also. And there Adam and Eve were, <clears throat> said, hey, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. Did they die as soon as they ate of the fruit? They did not. That was the mercy of God. Often we can go through the Old Testament and all we see is wrath, wrath, wrath. Many people would like to say that there's a different God of the Old Testament than there is of the New Testament. But that is not the case. Adam and Eve did not die because of the mercy, because of the patience, and because of the kindness of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, I don't know about you, but it's the story of where the Ark of the Covenant was, <clears throat> was, not, was, was, was in the Philistine country, in the town there. And they said, we need to bring the ark home. And so David sends the people to bring the ark home. And Uzzah and his brother go to get the ark along with the rest of the people. And they were the ones, they were from the line who could bring the ark home. And there were specific instructions given for how this ark must be moved. You had to do it with a rod on each side. You couldn't touch the ark. But if you were there to read 2 Samuel chapter 6, it would say that the ark was placed on a new cart. Well, at least it wasn't a used card, I guess. But that still was not the instructions that God had given them on moving his ark. And so as we came along, as they came along and as they moved this, this ark of the covenant on this cart, they came to the threshing floor and they hit a bump in the road. They had some potholes in the road. And the ark jumped a little bit. It was going to come off the cart. And so Uzzah did the normal thing, right? And he reached up. He touched the ark. To keep it from falling off, boom, God strikes him dead. I have a problem with that story. Do you? I mean, he was trying to do the right thing. But he didn't do the right thing. See, see God says, no, 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 Uzzah. See, okay, you guys are upset. David, you're upset. David says, I'm angry with you, God. Take the ark back. See, God gave them specific instructions. It wasn't the cart. It wasn't the soil that God was worried about. It, that was unclean. It was Uzzah that was unclean. God said, you follow my instructions or else. They didn't follow his instructions, and it was or else. We see stories like that, and we see that God's doing exactly what God said he would do. We see stories other times where God seems to extend his mercy and his grace for a certain extended period of time. You know, we ourselves, sometimes we find ourselves in a rough patch and say, God, how could you allow this thing to happen? And we forget the mercy and the grace and the patience and the tolerance God has had for us so long, for so many times. We become callous to the mercy of God that God brings to us day after day after day after day. You see, you and I, we are pathological sinners. Therefore, the kindness and the tolerance and the patience of God should bring us, now stay with me, should bring us to repentance. The mercy of God should bring us to repentance. See, often we think, or some preachers, and maybe you're thinking that's what I do, I don't know, I hope not, that it's just about the wrath of God that drives people to repentance. And Paul is saying not at all. It's actually the mercy of God. Because as we understand rightly the wrath of God, we will then understand rightly the mercy of God that he shows us day in and day out 
as he's patient with his people. And this person that's caught up in this more or less more <clears throat> moralistic trap, he does not understand the mercy of God. All their, all these things, is what the religious man said. All these things I have done from my youth. The moralistic person, the self-righteous person, doesn't understand himself. If we have a right understanding of the wrath of God, we will have a right understanding of the mercy of God. You see, it's not the wrath of God that brings repentance, but it's when I understand that the moment I ate from the fruit, if God was right, if God was justice, I would be struck dead. But I am not because of the mercy, because of the grace, the tolerance, the patience of God. It is that that Paul is telling the religious people right here in these first five verses. This is what should drive us to a repentant heart. And this, if I might tie it in with next weekend, is why Good Friday is called Good Friday. It is the day that the wrath that you and I deserve was poured out upon his son on behalf of you and I on behalf of those who will truly and completely surrender their heart and their life to Christ. It was the night that the earth went dark. It was the night that evil had its way. And it was the night that we fully seen the wrath of God poured out upon his son on behalf of you and I. That should indeed drive us to repentance. Why? Because we know Easter's coming. Because we know Sunday morning's coming. Because we know that the darkness could do nothing other than relinquish itself to the light. This is what Good Friday, this is what Easter is all about. When we see God's patience and God's mercy and God's tolerance with us, we see it through the cross. We see it, we see it through the empty tomb. And that, and that, my friends, should drive us to repentance, knowing who we are, but knowing who we are in Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for Palm Sunday. It's a strange time where you came into the city and strange occurrence of events of that week. But Father, as we think about this week and all that transpired this week on your time in Jerusalem, it was a jam-packed week for you for sure. But Father, may we take some time this week to reflect upon what Good Friday really is. What it must have been like for you to take our place, for you to take our wrath, and for you to give us your righteousness, the great exchange. And Father, as we think about some of those things, our heart may become heavy. I pray, Lord, that you will make sure never far from our minds in our heart is Sunday's coming. Sunrise is coming on that Sunday morning, that first day of the week, when evil, when darkness was indeed defeated. And it is in that that we place our hope and our trust. And so, Father, we just give this morning to you and these words, and may your spirit do the work in our hearts and our minds. I pray it in the name of Jesus.